This is Challenge Extended, the adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Disabled Sports USA. I'm your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Challenge Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Challenge Extended provides an opportunity to share the personal stories of our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. met Paralympian Trish Downing back in October at a Blue Ridge Excellence event sponsored by Athenica. She's an amazing athlete, advocate, and human being. Since the cycling accident that left her paralyzed, Trish has completed over 100 races, including marathons and triathlons. She was the first female paraplegic to complete an Ironman triathlon and qualified for the Hawaii Ironman World Championship twice. She's a member of the United States National Shooting Team and represented Team USA at the Rio Games in 2016. In addition to her athletic career, Trish has been a disability rights advocate, founding Camp Discovery and the Cycle of Hope nonprofit, focusing on helping female wheelchair users gain confidence and self-esteem through a yearly sports and fitness retreat. She's also a published author. Trish, I'm delighted to have you as my guest today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So um, for folks that may be listening and not know a little bit about your background, you've been involved in sports most of your life. Is that correct? That's correct. I started um, swimming when I was four years old. So um, I have been active as an athlete almost that whole time. I went through a little couch potato spell after I graduated from college. But other than that, I've pretty much been involved in competitive athletics my whole life. And you had um, an interest in, you know, uh, pursuing the the Olympics, uh, you know, prior to your accident. Uh, what, what sport were you interested in uh, at that time, and what, what were you pursuing? Um, I, well, I was pursuing the sport of cycling. Um, I don't know that I actually could have or would have made it to the Olympic level, but I definitely was um, looking to um, make it to the elite level where I could you know, possibly race um, as a pro racer, and um, you know that can mean a variety of different things to different people because a lot of pro athletes don't necessarily make a full living from their sports. But, um, you know, I was hoping to be very active on the women's cycling circuit. And um, so walk me through kind of that, that time frame in your life in terms of, you know, were you, this was this pre, you know, college, um, were you, you know, already traveling the circuit um, and entering competitions? Um, yeah, I, I started cycling um, in my late 20s. I, um, when I was about 25, I did an internship at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And, uh, you know, at the time, I just applied for the internship, but they placed you just wherever, you know, with whatever sport, you know, you kind of randomly got chosen to go with. And so um, I was chosen to go to USA Cycling, which is the national governing body for the sport of cycling. And at the time, for me, cycling really just meant transportation, um, because that's how I got back and forth to swim practice, you know, from the time I was seven to the time I was 17. Um, I rode my bike back and forth to swim practice. So that's really all I knew about the sport of cycling. I didn't realize all that time that it was actually a competitive sport and that it was a sport in the Olympics. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's because I was living under a rock or if it just wasn't very well publicized, you know, when I was a kid, but as I was working at USA Cycling, I 
had the opportunity to travel around the country to different events. They were short a staff person in their communications department that summer. And my degree, my undergraduate degree is in journalism. So um, I went to the junior national championships, the senior national championships, and then also the um, U.S. Olympic Festival. That was back when, when they still had that. And, and I was responsible for writing press releases and things like that um, after the races. And I did a lot at the velodrome you know, at the track cycling racing. Mm -hmm. And it was just so exciting. It was, it was fast and it was scary and, you know, bikes with one gear and no brakes and crashes and all of these things. And, (laughs) you know, I just was just thrilled by the, you know, adrenaline of it all. And so I made a promise to myself that I would learn how to ride on the velodrome. And, so I think it was a couple of years later that I actually um, took a class, an introductory, like it was a, you know, women's introductory class to track cycling. And I took that and from there just kind of took off and loved it. And I know that you've, you know, obviously told the story before and, and been pretty open about it. And you were actually uh, cycling when, uh, when you had a, a tragic accident. And can you talk tell us about that? Yeah, so um, along with racing at the track, I hired a coach and as part of my training, you know, he said, you can't really just train on the track, you've got to get on the road and get some, you know, basic skills and endurance and all of those kinds of things. So I actually ended up taking up road cycling also. And one day in 2000, it was the fall of 2000, I was on a training ride with a friend and a car turned in front of us and um, my friend was able to kind of swerve around the car to avoid being hit and I was just behind him and ran right into the front of the car Mm. and I was launched off my bike and I landed on the windshield of the car on my back and then fell to the ground and it was you know kind of an immediate thing I was I was immediately paralyzed and Um, As I was lying there on the ground, I could feel the pavement under my shoulders, but I couldn't feel anything under my legs. They felt like they were just floating in midair. And so I knew then that something was was very wrong. And, you know, by the time we got to the hospital and I got through all the tests of the evening, the doctors kind of confirmed our worst fears of that I was paralyzed from the chest down and that I was going to be dependent on a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Uh, What was your recovery, you know, process or, or period during that time frame? Um, the recovery total lasted um, just over four months. I was in the ICU for about three and a half weeks. They um, had to stabilize me. Um, they put rods in my back. I um, had also broken two ribs in my scapula and fractured a vertebrae in my neck. And so I had a neck brace, a back brace, And um, then I had some internal issues, so I ended up having my gallbladder removed. And then once all of that was stable and I was out of ICU and out of the hospital, I was transferred to Craig Rehabilitation uh, Center in um, Inglewood, Colorado, Mm -hmm. which is not very far from where I live in Denver. So I was very familiar with Craig, and that was really the only place that my family was considering having me go for my rehab. And so I was at Craig just over three months, um, learning how to navigate life in a wheelchair to 
take care of myself physically, deal with the mental and emotional pieces, and just really get back to to life. And and I'm glad you mentioned the mental and emotional. So obviously the the physical uh, uh, rehab re- rehabilitation, you know, is, is kind of you walk walked us through that. What was, what was your mental and emotional state? You know, I mean, obviously, particularly with your interest in sports and and where what where were you and what were you thinking? Um, well, I was pretty stubborn um, and didn't really want to spend time with the with the psychologist at the hospital. So I really didn't do a lot of that. But I think, you know, the recovery is really very much um, an up and down situation. I would have days where I would, you know, be in a, a good state of mind and think, okay, you know, this has happened. It's not good, but I know I can deal with it. And then there would be other days where I'd kind of crash and burn and be like, you know, what is my life coming to? What's going to happen when I leave uh, the hospital? But overall, I think my athlete mentality really came into play. When I was in the hospital, I did a lot of, you know, just kind of visualizing new scenarios for my life and what was going to be possible. And one of the advantages I went into this situation with was that as part of my cycling training, um, my coach um, hooked me up with a athlete who was a visually impaired cyclist. And so I became a tandem pilot and competed at the 1998 World Disabled Cycling Championships. That's what it was called at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was the person on the front of the tandem, kind of the eyes. And then I had two different stokers, which is the name for the person on the back of the tandem. Um, I worked with a female and a male. And so I had the opportunity to meet a lot of athletes with disabilities. And so I knew that there was a lot that was possible for me still, um, even though I was paralyzed. And so I think knowing that and having that experience um, in my background is what, what really got me through um, you know, the difficult parts of being in the hospital and realizing that your life is, you know, completely changed. And um, I had a lot of those athletes calling me and, you know, talking me through the transition and, you know, telling me, you know, life's not over, it's just different. So, you know, get through the, the physical part and the healing part as best you can. And then, you know, we'll work on the rest when you get out of the hospital. And so that was a really lucky thing in my life because I had, I had that. So, but that didn't, you know, that doesn't mean I didn't have hard times because it definitely, you know, it's, it's hard when your life changes and you're 30 years old and, and you had all these thoughts and plans and dreams for how things were going to work out. And then you have to redefine all of that and figure out again, what it was going to be like. Right. And that's a very, a very good point. But, you know, the fact that, fact that you had that exposure is, you know, uh, uh, an advantage that many, many folks, uh, if they come into a disability, if you will, don't, haven't had that experience. So, so at least, so when, uh, since you had that exposure, um, did you uh, know immediately, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of sport you wanted to, to try or do? I mean, did you consider like uh, wheelchair racing or hand cycling or anything along those lines? Uh, or Yeah, uh, I was, I mean, I was pretty set on being a hand cyclist when I got out of the hospital. And unfortunately, Craig has a really 
robust rec therapy department and they got me on a hand cycle. They got me on a racing chair. Um, so they showed me these sports. They got me back into the water again. And so when I got out of the hospital, um, I started to pursue hand cycling. And then I realized, um, at least in my area, a lot of the hand cycling races were held in conjunction um, with regular, you know, two-wheeled bike races. And mm -hmm. I just um, at that time found that I had a really hard time um, being around those races that I, you know, should have been in or would have been in or could have been in. So that, it, that didn't really help me um, mentally recover. So um, then I started thinking about some of the other things that I could do. And I considered, you know, track and field with the, with the racing chair, but ultimately ended up um, in triathlon just because it was something a little bit new and different. There weren't um, a lot of racers doing that at that time. And um, we have a lot of triathlons in Colorado. So I just decided to kind of figure that out on my own. And that's how I landed in the sport of triathlon. And um, obviously triathlon is, is means three. So is there a favorite of the three that you have or had? Um, it really depends on the day and it depends on the course. I've had some really great swims. You know, I grew up as a swimmer and mm -hmm. so I've had some really great swims, but I've also had some really horrible conditions and, and hard swims and same with the hand cycle and the racing chair. So I would, I, I tend to call myself a typical triathlete where <laughs> I can do very well in each sport, but I'm not like a standout in any particular one sport. But I think that kind of works to my advantage because I, I, I'm like, you know, kind of steady Eddie, like I can just do all of them well. Um, I don't like have a really horrible swim and then a really amazing bike and then an average run or something like that. And so I think, I, I don't know, I think some of the best triathletes, you know, can really hold their own in each one of the sports, but may not, might never ever be able to do one at the level that they can do the three of them put together. Well, and there are many, many steady eddies that have done very, very well, right? And come out on top because yeah, of the consistency. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then we, so we've really got to turn to shooting. How in the world did you get involved in the, sh the, the shooting sports? Yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it wasn't ever anything that I had ever been exposed to in my life. But I, um, when I was doing triathlons, I was really focused on distance triathlon. So like Ironman distance. And um, I don't think that our shoulders are built to do Ironman, um, especially as a female, you know, when we have smaller upper bodies and not quite the strength and, and muscular endurance that men have. And so I, my last time in Hawaii, I qualified for the Hawaii Ironman in 2010 for the second time. And after the bike leg of that race, my shoulder, my left shoulder was just pretty cooked. And typically after, you know, doing big triathlons like that, you know, I'd rest for a couple of weeks, get some massages and my shoulders would bounce right back. And after that race, um, my left shoulder just didn't bounce back. And so I went to my doctor and I went to the physical therapist and the physical therapist said, you know, really my problem was just the, um, the lack of balance between my body. You know, I was used to doing um, forward motion pushing activities and I hadn't really built my back, you know, as, as well. So, you know, he said doing, you know, rowing activities like, you know, rowing machines at the gym or, 
you know, weights and stuff like that to build my, my back and my shoulders would, would be the best thing to do. And for me, I just sort of took that as, oh, well, I maybe should race in rowing. <laughs> like I'm not really a, a, a uh, I didn't, I don't take things lightly, I guess. I just like to jump right to the top. And so mm-hmm. I started um, racing and rowing and the U.S. Rowing Association um, recruited me to um, try to make the 2012 Paralympic Games. And they, it was, it was basically, you know, you've been successful in another endurance sport, you know, basically you need to learn how to row, but you've got all the other pieces in place. And so I I started doing that and it was, I didn't really have a lot of time to try to prepare for London and I did too much too fast and ended up injuring um, my back further and injuring my hip. And so I had four surgeries and my athletic career came to an end and I um, had a lot of chronic pain and just, I thought I was done doing sports completely so um, I just kind of found other things to focus on in my life and just tried to deal with the pain the best I could. And after a while, I was like, I really need to get back to something where I can compete and compete at a high level. And I, I looked at the Paralympic sports that are out there and I thought, well, maybe shooting won't beat me up too much. So um, I contacted the national coach and asked, you know, how does one become a shooter? <laughs> And this kind of from there is, you know, where we went. And I ended up making it to the Paralympics in 2016 in Rio. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's just an amazing journey um, in terms of just going from, you know, your desire and interest to compete and really it turns out obviously in any sport, I mean, and, and whatever sport, you know, you're, you're able to do at the time. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I find that, you know, extremely remarkable. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on, um, you know, kind of shooting and the sport. Can you walk me through, um, how, you know, like how you trained for that sport, obviously, um, and the types of competitions that you would go to and, and just, you know, kind of go give me an overview of, of um, your experience with US, USA shooting. Um, yeah, it's, um, shooting is an interesting sport. It, um, it's very different from anything that I've ever done before. And, you know, from doing Ironman, I really considered myself a very mentally tough athlete. Um, but shooting is, is a different kind of mental toughness because, um, with the sports that I'd done, it was always about getting yourself up and getting yourself hyped and excited and, feeling strong and Mm. shooting is a lot more about being calm. It's more like meditation than, you know, sport almost. And so it was a really difficult transition and it's still difficult for me to be able to control my mind and either be able to clear my thoughts or at least have the right kind of thoughts that can help me um, I guess I kind of am trying to like not think about my shots rather than think about them. Um, cause when you start analyzing them, then that's when things go wrong. But when you can get into that place of just doing it automatically and it just sort of flows, then that's when you know that you're doing the right thing. So, um, there's a lot of, you know, with shooting, you do a lot of like holding drills and dry fire drills and things like 
just against a blank wall that, you know, I can do in my bedroom or in my living room so that you um, can condition the muscles um, to be steady and um, condition your, you know, finger to do a, a real light trigger pull and not, you know, yank on the trigger because that moves the gun. I, I shoot pistols, so that's different than rifle and shotgun, but, you know, a lot of the same principles apply. And so, you know, you do a lot of that and then you spend a lot of time at the range sitting in front of a target and, and just doing shot after shot after shot and trying to figure out, you know, trying to figure a, a consistent process that you can follow each time to get, the, you know, the result that you're looking for. And it's, it's like, it's kind of the worst head game that you can get involved in because, <laughs> you know, you just kind of psych yourself out when you start thinking about, you know, the wrong things or when you're like trying to focus on one thing and then five other things fall apart and then you try to focus on those five things and then, you know, that other thing falls apart. It's like you can't concentrate on that many things at one time. So you really have to get to where it's kind of a a rote sort of thing, but also, you know, you need to, as you're learning it, you need to focus on one thing at a time and get each one of those figured out so that when you put it all together, you don't have to overthink it. And so, uh, so it's really a, a different type of concentration. I mean, obviously, yeah. uh, in all sports, you have to have concentration, but this is, as you, as you alluded to, a, a totally different type of con- concentration than most other sports, in the, particularly the sports that you had been involved in. Yeah, I, people, I've never um, been a golfer, but a lot of people will relate it to the kind of concentration that you have to have with golf or any other kind of target sport. So yeah, it's really, it's just really was really different for me. And it was um, hard to make that transition. But it's the one thing that I think that you can sort of count on, like with any sport is that if you just drill things over and over again and you work the progression and um, you know, you put the time and the energy and effort into it, then um, you can still, you know, you can get there, you can do well, but it does, there is a lot of just really boring parts to it. Um, (laughs) And a lot lot of just like over and over again, that is hard for somebody who really likes, you know, I really like the endurance aspect of sports and I like the power aspect of sports. And those are all things that I've had to learn to pull back on in, in my training for shooting. So it's definitely um, a big challenge for me. And uh, for maybe those that aren't familiar with, um, you know, the, the Paralympics level or Paralympic sport of, of pistol shooting, you know, what, what is pistol shooting? What, what is the range to the target or the distance to the target? Are you, how, how do you, what, what is considered a match or, or how many times do you get to shoot those types of things? Yeah, we have three different um, distances. So one is 10 meter, one is 25 meter, and one is 50 meter. The 10 meter um, distance, you are shooting an air pistol. So um, it's a it's a lighter pistol. Um, you're shooting a pellet that looks kind of like an hourglass, but is, you know, like basically the size of a BB kind mm-hmm. of. So, you know, your 10 ring is smaller than the top of your pinky finger it's it's tiny and that takes a lot of you know being steady 
The 25 meter has two different portions to it. It has a precision portion and then a um, rapid fire portion. So the precision is a lot like doing air pistol, but you're using a 22 pistol um, and shooting at 25 meters, but you're still trying to be very still and very precise. In all of the events, you're only holding the pistol with one hand and you're not resting it on a bench or anything like that. So um, that is kind of where the difficulty comes in because like any slight movement can make um, Mm -hmm. your, you know, your bullet go off on the target. And so, so the 25 meter is the precision part and then the rapid fire part and rapid fire is um, sets of five shots where you lift your arm, take a shot and then put your arm back down again, watch for the, um, there's a light at the target that goes green. So then you lift your arm again and you have to shoot before um, it turns red. So you've got like seven seconds to um, lift and take that shot. So it's, it's a really, it's a, I mean, it's fast, but it's also kind of slow. Like once you've done it for a while, you're like, Oh, it's not like I have to like, you know, totally speed my arm up, you know, like, I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. I guess it's it's, it's not like a sprint, but it's a very brisk <laughs> movement <laughs> to get it up there in time to take the shot and then put it down again and get ready for the next shot. So, um, but it takes a lot of coordination and again, keeping your mind um, on the correct thing. So you're not, you cannot let your mind wander in that at all, or you're in big trouble. Um, and then the 50 meter, which is an event I've just recently started, it's called free pistol. And that is a super difficult event. And in fact, they, it used to be an Olympic event and they just took it out. It's, it's very, it's, it's frustrating. It's a little bit, your pistol is a little bit a combination of the air pistol and the 22 because it's a 22 pistol, but it looks, it looks more like the air pistol. Um, although it's heavier. And when you're 50 meters out, any slight motion you make, is a huge motion on the target. So, you know, you can start with a hold that you think is like a, you know, nine or a 10, but ultimately the shot ends up being a four because you've made like the tiniest hair of a movement. Um, So it really, it's it's a really difficult sport. (laughs) It's really hard. (laughs) Yes, I could just imagine. Uh, Is it something, so you mentioned obviously the 50 meters not a, uh, Paralympic sport are you are you where are you in the sport are you looking at um, 2020 and and uh, and beyond or are you looking at other kind of pursuits in the in the Paralympic sport as, in the Paralympic um, field as well um, well so I'm training for 2020 um, in pistol um, we have our final qualifier in May so that will be the time when I know if I have earned a quota spot and will make the team or not. It's, you know, the competition, it's not, it's not about beating um, anybody in the U S it's about your international ranking Mm -hmm. in, in the competition. So, um, you know, there are, there's still quite a few women around the world who don't have quota spots yet. So there's going to be really good competition in, um, in Lima, Peru, when we go there in May. So right now I'm really focused on training for that. But I also, um, uh, I think just for sanity and exercise sake, I'm also jumping back into triathlons um, for the first time since 2010. And I've done two so far. And I'm 
Um, only doing sprint triathlons now, no more long distance. I'm trying not to kill my body, but to <laughs> do something that right. I um, enjoy. And, um, one of the things about shooting is that it's a lot, it's so, um, um, mentally focused and sometimes I just need to get on my bike and let my mind go. And so that's what, um, triathlon allows me to do is, is balance that really, you know, thoughtful, slow meditative process of shooting with, um, getting all the energy out so that I can, you know, concentrate when I'm at the range. I found early on with shooting that if that's all I did, I just had all these thoughts and things balled up in my head and my ADD and everything. <laughs> like it just, there wasn't enough room for it. So writing is sort of my therapy. Yeah. Um, so you need an outlet but, for all of that, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. I, I need an outlet for all of that so that when I get to the range, I can focus on what I'm doing with shooting. And speaking of balance, I know uh, we have just a few minutes left. Obviously, besides, you know, competing at, at the highest level uh, and being an, uh, an elite athlete, you've done a number of other things. Uh, you've written books, you're a speaker, uh, talk to me a little bit about some of that work and your work at, you know, rede redefining ABLE. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, part of being a Paralympian for probably 98% of us, you can't really just quit your job and do sports full time. You know, shooting doesn't pay the bills mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> so um, I sort of fell into um, motivational speaking as many athletes do because it's something that you can, um, you know, do gigs as they come around, but it's not something that is an everyday thing or it can be a lot more flexible. So that's where the speaking fell in. And now I am trying to um, expand my speaking from, you know, just the motivational part to really educating people on disabilities and accessibility and things like that, that where I've seen, you know, there are, you know, places where we can improve our communities mm -hmm. um, when it comes to people with disabilities. So that's one of the things I'm working on. And then I also have written two books. One is a memoir that, you know, kind of recounts the injury and the rehab process and getting back into sports. And then the other one is a fiction novel, which is a love story because I am, you know, I'm into chick flicks and chick lit <laughs> and I like, I like happy endings. So I always call it fairy tales for adults. And um, so that's what I write. But the difference is, is that I want to have my main character um, having a disability in each of my books. So, or, or at least one of the main characters having a disability in my book so that it can not just be education or not just entertainment, but can also be education too. So that people realize that, you know, individuals with disabilities also have lives and needs and desires and, and things like that. And, you know, a lot of times people will be surprised when I tell them, tell them, you know, I'm married and, have a house and two cats and a job and, you know, all these things are like, wow, you do so much. I'm like, no, I don't actually do really much more than your average person. Right. Um, exactly. And, and anybody with a disability needs these things. And, um, you know, like 
I might be excessive in some of my, you know, goals, like wanting to go to the Paralympics as opposed to being a weekend warrior or something like that. But, you know, in general, in people with disabilities, they've, they've got dreams, they've got goals, they've got, um, you know, day-to-day life that they need to live the best way that they know how. And I, I want others to understand that we're not this like strange, you know, race of people. We're just like anybody else. We just, you know, have maybe some different challenges, maybe some different abilities. You know, we're just regular people. That's uh, definitely a a great uh, note to end on as well. If folks are interested in learning more, I think you you have a website or are there other ways that that people can kind of either connect with you or or follow you or reach out to you? I do. My website is trishadowning.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A downing.com and I am on social media at redefining able on Instagram and Twitter. Well, wonderful. Well, Trish, thank you so much for being my guest today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me.